Please welcome to your ears Michael Wilder Frizzell, reading his monologue, Interviewing with the Devil. You want to know the scariest thing that's ever happened to me? I guess you probably don't scare so easily, huh? I need to explain this, even if you don't fully understand. You ever interview for a job you're not really qualified for? Oh, hi. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I just have to say, I'm a really big fan. Obviously, I know everyone says that, but I... L- <laughs> you love my work? Oh, I mean, well... This is when I first disassociate and feel my anxiety pop up like a gopher and become its own voice in my head. Sir Elton John knows about my work? Sir Elton John knows about my work? Sir Elton John knows about my work? This is followed immediately by sheer terror. From your response, I guess you know about that. What work has he read? Did he Google me? What did he find? Did my agent send that packet? That packet! I need to revise that packet. God, those samples are so amateur. That packet is so paint by numbers. Wait, tune back in. She's talking. Thank you for saying that. I'm a little embarrassed to hear it, but my therapist is helping me accept compliments with gratitude. My therapist is also accepting one-third of my income, too. God, I really need this job. Did I remember to turn off Bottle Bay on the Discover card? No, thank you. No bottled water, please. Trying to be a little more environmentally friendly. Doing my part not to bring about the end times. She laughed, but he didn't. Note, no biblical jokes for him. Well, thank you so much for having me in today. I would love to work on this musical with you both. I was interviewing to write the book to The Devil Wears Prada, the musical with lyrics by Shayna Taub and music by Sir Elton John. I see that got a response out of you. I remember trying to impress them so hard. I just have to say, this idea excites me so much. The movie, um, it's such a total piece of art. A Gustamkunstwerk, um... Did you just mess up the pronunciation? Watch their faces. Do you know that... Wagner idea? Did you just say Wagner? Not Wagner anymore, I guess, you Midwestern sellout? Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Obviously they know about Wagner's Gunstamkunstwerk. Yes, so another paint-by-numbers, corporate-friendly, sort of sanitized musical. Just the movie with some music thrown in. Some amazing music, obviously, coming from you both. And then some jokes. That isn't interesting to me. From what I know, it sounds like you both aren't interested in that either. We really have to pay homage. Homage? To the form, which is in fact the best way to honor the original work and its rabid fan base. Okay, yes. God, her eyes sparkle. Watch the corner of her mouth. It turns into a smile. Does that mean she likes me? Is she flirting? Don't make eye contact with him. Don't! Oh no, he's sizing me up. No, he's not. He's a gay man of a certain age. It's not hostility. Turn off your straight brain. Hey, she's wrapping up. Eye contact. Repeat back her main points. Wait, what were her main points? I can't believe you were thinking about sex, you idiot stall. Amazing. Cool. (laughs) Sorry, I'm a little nervous. Oh, they know. They know your secret. 
Oh, <clears throat> great. Okay, yes. Here is my pitch for The Devil Wears Prada, the musical. And that's where you come in. My scary story, this deep secret, I had never seen the movie. I have never seen The Devil Wears Prada. I've only ever watched the trailer. I heard about this job literally the night before, and then I found myself on a plane to Chicago for the interview first thing in the morning. I know the basic outline. Fashion and Anne Hathaway. Stanley Tucci is funny. Meryl Streep is mean and then probably nice at the end. I really am struggling to read you sometimes. The point is, I blacked out. I don't even remember my pitch. No drug will ever match the adrenaline of that moment. I had another out-of-body experience, and I heard myself talking, and I heard my anxiety self worrying, and I watched them listening to me. I don't remember a thing that I said, but I do remember me ending, them looking at each other, and asking if I have any questions. Oh, um, yes. I would love to hear about how you two collaborate. Or what maybe you're looking for in a book writer? They shared a smile, this knowing smile, as if to say, I will never know. That they are these Olympian gods, and mere mortals like me couldn't begin to fathom. And then they fed me some bullshit and shook my hand, and I left. I had to walk by all the other writers in the waiting room, who were wearing suits, by the way. I don't know if they had made their own deals, but everyone else was wearing suits. Meanwhile, I had read online that writers should always be in hoodies because we're supposed to be quirky, so the business people don't feel threatened. So I'm in a hoodie, but I'm worried that's too informal. So I've got a blazer over the hoodie, looking like some tech bro douchebag knockoff because I want to be professional and quirky. But on the way there, I realize this is Elton John. I'm trying to be quirky in front of Sir Elton John? Okay, you're really responding to that name. Do you know him? Did Sir Elton John sell his soul or something? Alright, alright, calm down, sorry. The point is, I blew it. I didn't get the job. Or at least, I haven't heard anything yet. It's been a few days. And I thought to myself, you need to be the arbiter of your own fate. What would Sir Elton John do? So, yeah, that's why we're here. That's why I summoned you. I don't think you speak English or understand anything I've said besides those names. I guess that makes sense. Do you speak, like, Babylonian? Well, the ritual was in Latin, but I Google translated that. That checks out that you're familiar with that company. I'm about to set you free from this pentagram prison thing. I'm inviting you into our world. You need to help me fix this, okay? I need this job. I don't care if you bring about the end times. I need to write the book for The Devil Wears Prada the Musical, even if it takes a deal with the devil itself. You ready to make some dreams come true? Hello, and welcome to 
The Chef's Monologue, a podcast where we, your hosts, Phil Kenner, and me, Michael Wilder Frizzell, invite our favorite writers to cook up an original short monologue based on a recipe that we provide. Then we interview those iconic writers about their process, thoughts on theater, film, TV, etc., and deliver it directly into your hungry ears. We're so happy you're here with us today for this special episode where our very own Michael Wilder Frizzell has shared the monologue that started it all, entitled Interviewing for the Devil. So this is where I get to step into the long-coveted role of tyrannical solo interviewer. Mike, tell me about the monologue. What inspired you to write it? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me, Phil. I'm really excited to be on this show. I've been a long-term fan, long-term fan. Oh, shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I wrote this monologue. This is, in fact, the monologue that started it all. We were in graduate school, the start of our winter quarter, I did not get an opportunity that I really wanted. And I sort of felt bad about it for a while. And then at one night I couldn't sleep and I wrote this monologue in a fury. I wrote this the original draft of this monologue in like 30 minutes. Uh-huh. And it was this unhinged character talking about what it would be like to interview, to write the Devil's Wears Prada musical, which is a real musical that you had told me about. We had uh, previously that week, you had told me to mention something about this. You had heard about this experience of writers that you knew who were a little bit ahead of you g- getting interviewed for this job and having to go through this experience of, you know, they're all competing for one slot, but they also, you know, want their fellow writers to get success. And I was inspired by that. I wrote this unhinged monologue. And then when we were first doing these, our, our first uh, cohort, the um, farmer's market cohort mm-hmm. we needed some time to um, go into the studio and figure it out and I, I sort of volunteered that this monologue which started it all was going to be was going to be the first uh, sacrificial victim uh-huh so for the fans in the audience for the fans listening at home this is actually the first episode we're recording you're hearing it much later you've already heard the other writers in the cohort but this is the first episode we are recording, so some fan service. I'm curious to know how much the monologue changed from when you wrote it in your 30-minute fury to now. Almost drastically. So the first uh, iteration had the writer talking about this interview, and it was pretty much entirely you were in the room with the writer. Um, there was sort of this anxiety voice was still present. And then it wasn't until the second – I was finishing up the second draft and getting towards the end – and I was like, I, there's something missing. I, I a, a large part of that first monologue was me as the writer talking about this play that I had written that didn't win me the competition that I really wanted that I talked about earlier. And the original monologue was all about how good that play was. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, this, I need to out loud describe how good this other play that I wrote was. Well, in, in this unhinged monologue, I was I was saying, like, I, I had imagined Shayna Tobb and Elton Job, Elton Job, Elton John saying to me, like, we love your work. That still was in that a little bit. We love your work. We love this play so much. Here's why we love it. And, like, <laughs> having them, like, just, like, what I wanted to hear, I was manifesting into the world what I wanted people to say about my play. You were literally astral projecting Elton John telling you that he liked the play that didn't win the thing you wanted to win. Yes, exactly. So if that's not an exercise in therapy for writers, I don't know what is. So, so the first draft was that. And then as I was going to the second draft, I was like, that doesn't, I'm not, I don't think that's dramatically that interesting to me. So like the, the Devil Wears Prada is such a juicy title to me. 
Um, and it's true, I've never actually seen the movie. I've only ever seen the trailer. And it seems oh. like... Um, <laughs> Phil, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, excuse me? I know what we're doing tonight. Um, Watching that fucking movie. Yep. Um, anyway, so so I, uh, in the subsequent draft, I kind of had this idea. I was like, well, that's interesting. Something about the devil and like this idea of like someone wanting something so much that they would do anything. And that's such a kind of classic idea, like selling your soul to the devil. Okay, perfect. Now we have a writer. And that gives me kind of, in terms of this monologue, an audience. Like kind of, I, I'm really ex- always excited by theater or art that gives the audience a identity. So I think I don't know at what point it'd be interesting to hear from you. You kind of maybe realize that you're not just a listener, that you might be somebody in the story. Uh-huh. And I think that's exciting for me as an audience member where I'm like, oh, okay. So it's like there's I, I'm, I'm being presented information that I'm now getting better contextualized and it's like something I wasn't expecting or something new. Right, right. So you're talking about that phenomenon of casting the audience. Which Correct. Is this like unbelievably delicious thing that we get to do as theater makers where the audience is in a position that they're unfamiliar with and then part of the mystery or the joy of watching or listening to the thing that you're listening or watching to is that you have to discover as an audience member who am I? Why am I here? What is this? What is being presented to me? And so you cast the audience as it seems Satan or a lesser demon of right. some kind. Yeah, I never quite decided where I wanted it. If it was the devil or if it was a lesser demon. Yeah, I um, loved the part where you were like, "I'm going to set you free from this little <laughs> pentagram, from like my salt circle," because yeah. you, I was imagining like a tiny little dog in one of those like puppy cages. You yeah, get yeah. you get a new dog. Um, there's also something you said that I want to underline, which was the. Um, writing a fantasy in which the thing that you wrote, one, is terrifying because there's this writer, Rachel Pollack, and she was, um, I was reading her recently, and she says that oftentimes the things that we're most excited about or the things that um, like activate our ambition are the things that also scare the shit out of us the mm-hmm. most. And so there's mm-hmm. this like, there's this double bind of, oh, I'm going to write a monologue in which... Um, I'm doing a little bit of wish fulfillment. My thing is successful. People love it. But then that's also terrifying because that acknowledges that I wanted that to happen. Mm -hmm. That acknowledges the little animal in me that's like, oh, I really wanted people to like this. And they didn't. And now I'm having to write a monologue instead of real life. Um, So I'm, I'm interested to know how this lines up with your writing. You said sometimes you have to check the vulnerability meter in your writing. How often does that come up for you? How much is this monologue in the larger oeuvre of your writing? Homage? Um, <laughs> how much is it in line with what you usually write and how is it a departure? I think this was a total exciting sandbox for me to just... Well, I think, one, it's a massive departure because I do not write monologues. I do not do mm-hmm. in plays, um, but specifically like solo monologues. I think they've always been this kind of the Mount Everest of writing, that idea of like you can take, you can have a, you can have a character speak for however long, five, four, three, four to five minutes, have capture the audience's attention the entire time is terrifying to me. So mm-hmm. in that sense, it was both an exciting sandbox and also like a pretty big challenge to be like, well, how do I keep keep, keep people engaged and how do I write a monologue that's engaging? Um, mm-hmm. So in departure in that sense. Um, and then I think this, it's pretty, you know, I think I often use humor a lot in my writing. So I love, you know, the joy. I, I think naturally I, I, I'm funny and I, I enjoy laughing and um, this monologue is pretty silly um, in, at points. So, but it's also, you know, it has a real, 
uh, emotional heartbeat. I hope it's like, you know, it's this person who, like you were just saying, really wants something. Like, I, I think, I, I hope I would never be in this situation, but I might summon a demon to, like, get me a job. Like, you know, you know, oh, yeah. If I wanted it enough, I think that I would. You would summon a demon to get <laughs> yeah, what you I want. I said that. I'm Don't also... cancel me. Hey, internet. <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell Twitter about the podcast. No, we're going to have to tell Twitter about the podcast. Uh-huh. I am also happy, just for the sake of our friendship, that I have you on tape now saying, I'm funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's perfect. The task was writing one voice, one train of thought that would captivate an audience, right? Like that is the challenge inherent in writing a monologue. Mm -hmm. But what I love about your monologue that you did was you cheated almost in a way. You gave us like three trains of thought. You gave us playwright talking to demon, playwright talking to Mm -hmm. Elton and Shana, and then playwright talking to themselves. Mm -hmm. And so in an effort to mitigate the challenge of, oh, God, how do I keep one train of thought for five minutes and have my audience stay engaged. Instead, you're like, oh, I know. It's going to be three trains of thought. Uh Um, And that was something that, that was the thing I loved so much about this monologue when I heard it for the first time months ago was the like frantic intercut back and forth between the real person and the anxiety. And I think that that is a special, that's a special thing that you did here in the you're taking the monologue form and you're saying, fuck that. I'm not going to do one person talking to one person about one thing. I'm not even going to do a Shakespeare soliloquy where it's one person opining to the distance. Mm-hmm. I am going to try to represent some sort of psychological process, some sort of terrifying cognition, but in monologue form, which I think is really exciting. Anyway, mm-hmm. you were saying casting the audience, intellectual exercise. I love that. And there's these sort of like, there's like a history of those two things, or there are two things you can consider when you're casting the audience. One is the intellectual exercise. Like we're going to make you wait to figure out who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be part of the reveal. That's going to be part of the theatrical experience is you sort of having your own mystery mobile evening where you try to figure out who the hell you are in this show. And eventually and intentionally it is revealed to you. There's also the flip side. And I think musicals maybe do this more often. It certainly... Um, in plays like Our Town as well, where you know who you are right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You're in Gastic Grover's Corners mm-hmm. or, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the musical, but there are there are lots of musicals where it starts and it's like, hi, welcome to our town. Mm-hmm. Like you are visiting our town. Mm-hmm. And that, that direct address at the beginning removes the audience's role as like detective, mm-hmm. but it then casts them immediately so that they can... The show could just start. You know, mm-hmm. you can just do the thing. You can just have the person in your town. That's yeah. an exciting, I think that's just an exciting dramatic. I, I'm always w- a little bit weirded out by plays or films that do this. Obviously, in, it's, it's sort of intentional. It's it's baked into the, the form of film. It's like we're a bunch of humans sitting in a room together. We're not going to acknowledge that. Like the idea of like the proscenium and like this is happening in front of you and you can have no interaction with it and you are not included. You are here to watch. I think that's that form that form of art making obviously is very successful and I've you know it's almost the norm and and I get it but I also simultaneously am very excited by plays that you're referencing by this monologue by this play I'm writing right now where it's like we are going to invite you in to this world maybe not in the way that you expect but you are mm. you are here you are acknowledged mm-hmm. and like we're going to make you know the, I think it, your your presence is crucial to the story or acknowledging your presence. You're going to have to pretend as well. 
Exactly. Audience members. Exactly. You're not going to have to do anything. I right. mean, audience participation is a whole other thing. Totally. That, you know, deserves a whole 30-minute podcast mm-hmm. about why it's bad and no one should ever do it. But <laughs> <laughs> I think that there is um, there's something fun in being like, in order to be an audience member in this show, you're going to have to be cast as mm-hmm. a character in it. You don't have to do anything, mm-hmm. but you're going to have to be cast as a character in it. And specifically for this post-COVID moment, it's like, Oh God, we're finally getting to get back into rooms with people. You know, we finally what what joy that we can all gather communally. And like that's sort of the magic of theater. I think so many people lost out on uh, were were denied or or you know struggled with because it was unsafe, whatever. But it was just like this idea that like we're all together in a room is just is sort of like that you know uh, ancient sitting around a campfire. Oh, it's intoxicating. Yeah. And. I, okay, I'm thinking of a real example right now. In Great Comet, mm-hmm. the opening number is like um, you're at the opera. Mm-hmm. You know, you that show casts the audience as an audience. They're mm-hmm. like, you're here at the opera. You're famously not at an opera. You're at a musical. <laughs> but they're like, you're at the old Russian opera. There's chandeliers, caviar. The world can't touch us here. Like, they, they both acknowledge and create the space in that exact moment. And so there are so many different ways to cast your audience, but it's always in an effort to include, even in like a really nasty way, like you're mm-hmm. a like you're a sex worker who's been mistreated mm-hmm. and you're passed out on the floor of this politician's hotel mm-hmm. room. That's still including the audience, it's just a little less kind. <laughs> so this is the our favorite part, and I'm so glad I get to do this alone, but I get to demand you tell me what was your secret ingredient. My secret ingredient was, drum roll please, Meryl Streep. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I had to work her in somehow. (laughs) The not so secret ingredient of the Devil Wears Prada. I wish you would have said Cerulean, Mm -hmm. which is a reference you would get if you've seen the goddamn movie. But we'll fix that. Don't worry, listeners. I'm on it. I'm on the case. Um, Meryl Streep was your secret ingredient. That's beautiful. Um, you should also say for the story, just for posterity, about how the first time you did hear this monologue, if you want to say it. For the, oh, <laughs> well, I don't know if we'll include this. <laughs> but um, uh, last quarter, I had a class that ended Wednesday afternoons, and I would always go over to Mike's house, and he would mm-hmm. make snacks for us. And we would hang out and do work. Mike always had guitar lessons on Zoom from 6.30 to 8 on Wednesday nights. So I would sit and do work for an hour and a half. And then he would do his guitar lesson. Study hall. Study hall. We called it study hall. And then and then we'd probably smoke a bunch of weed and hang out. And um, the night that we came up with the idea for this podcast, Mike was like, oh, let me read you. No, wait. Other way around. You read me this monologue. You were like, oh, can I get this out of my system? I wrote this in response to not getting the thing that I wanted. And I was like, oh, sure, why not? And you read me this monologue, and I was like, "We, the world needs to hear this, which if that is not the most two friends being high thing <laughs> that could possibly happen, where I'm like, this was genius. The whole world needs to hear this. But the whole world does need to hear it. It was hilarious, and it made me crack up. And so then we decided we needed to do a podcast where people got certain limitations on monologues and did that. That you came up with, that Phil had that idea. That was totally you. You you had the idea to give people the ingredients and that they would do it. Yes. And that also comes from a theater company in New York called Club Thumb and our teacher, Aaron Courtney, who's a part of the Club Thumb universe. Um, they often give recipes or um, like generative restrictions. They say your play 
for this commission needs to include X, Y, and Z. There can be only three stage directions. It's like they give you rules that are meant to restrict you in a inspiring or generative way. And so mm-hmm. that is, we took all those things and we said, oh my God, we're going to call it the chef's monologue and it's going to be recipes. We came up with all of that that night. And a lot of our like email admin stuff has to do with Jessica Chastain because we yes. um, we watched a video um, called I'm Not Jessica Chastain, which is the greatest piece of musical theater writing <laughs> ever created. Um, check it out on YouTube. I forget the name of the composers, but they're legends. Well, um, it's specifically, I'm not Jessica Chastain. I am Bryce Dallas Howard. <laughs> right. Yes, it is a song from the perspective of Bryce Dallas Howard singing about how she is not Jessica Chastain. It's in the style of like a Disney villain song. It's so funny. It's my entire gender. I am obsessed <laughs> with it. And I make everybody I know watch it. And it was the perfect moment to show it to Mike. So. By Joe Kaplan and Al Kaplan. Thank you for, for Googling. Um, okay, well, Michael Wilder Frizzell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, which is your podcast, but thank Phil, you so much for coming on the podcast. Philip, thank you for having me. Oh, anytime.